Hello, my name is Ben. And I'm Tenny. And we are the hosts of the Too Vague Podcast this week. We are going to be talking about a very interesting subject, isn't that right? Yes. The word language, something that you have been working with for how long? 16. 16 years. Mm -hmm. Wow, 16 years of college. Yes. That's, <laughs> I, I, you're a better person than I. <laughs> Can you tell me what your interest in language where where it stemmed from when when you you know when you decided that this was going to be something you wanted to study where where did that come from like from your upbringing um i think it comes from my family um i come from a background a german background and portuguese and italian and my family was always interested in in learning languages mm -hmm. uh, my grandfather studied latin and greek although like i really regret not having learned from him but we were always like reading and uh, learning about languages back at home. Okay, and, and, that, and that was Brazil. That's Brazil, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, my dream was actually to become a Portuguese teacher. Oh, okay. Um, and so that's what I was thinking that I was going to do in college. Right. Um, my grandmother taught Portuguese as well, and I remember talking to her, and she we would be discussing like vocabulary or grammatical structures in Portuguese. And this is back when I was like 13, 14 years old, yeah, right? Yeah. And reading actually Reader's Digest in Portuguese. Uh -huh. um, but at that time I had already learned how to speak English. Right. And so when I was 15 years old, my dad and my mom asked me if I went in, like, you know, a big birthday party. In Brazil, it's also when you, you turn 15, not when you turn 16. Right. And I said um, that, no, I would rather travel. And so they sent me to London where my uncle was getting his master's degree. Oh, wow. And I spent a month there. And then I realized, like, hmm, if I become an English teacher, then I get to travel and live abroad. Right. And so right. that's what, that was the year before I had to take um, my entrance exams for the university uh, in Brazil. Okay. And so I decided when I got back that I was going to study to become an English teacher. Oh, wow. And so while I was in college, um, I started teaching English as mm -hmm. well, but I also took German classes mm -hmm. and okay. Spanish. And so... I think it's just a family interest. Yeah, and, it sounds like yeah. it sounds like you you knew exactly what you wanted to do oh, yeah, from, always, from a very early mm -hmm. age. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also kind of because of the Brazilian university system, you have to decide before you join the university what you want to study. Okay. It's not like it is here that you enter and then you can change your major or right. you, can you can take sample a whole exactly. bunch of different things and figure it out. I think there's a lot of advantages to that system, but in Brazil, you have to decide beforehand. Well, at least you did when I uh, started college mm -hmm. um, because you have to take specific entrance exams for whatever major you choose. So basically, I was 15 when I had to make that decision. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mango is loving you. I made Boy, a new friend. <laughs> you made a new friend. And it's so, so easily, <laughs> right? It's just like... He picks up that you're a cat person. Yes. And then Olive is our next door neighbor. Uh-huh. Yep. So you grew up in Brazil, mm -hmm. like your primary school sort of things. Uh, years, An undergraduate. Right? Undergraduate. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the way the school, I'm not familiar with the way the school system works in Brazil. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that 15 is when you decide kind of where you're going. I was but, a year ahead. So usually it's when you're 16, 17. Oh, but okay. for me, it was 15. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's not like with, with us, it's um, when you graduate high school, you're 18. Mm -hmm. There, when you make your decision 
as far as university is in your second year of high school. Okay. From that point forward, all of your studies are focused on getting you into the college that you want to Mm -hmm. get into. Um, Did you have any thoughts about maybe staying in Brazil and doing college there? Or was it just the, this experience where you went and you visited your uncle, my uncle in 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 London London, Mm -hmm. that that kind of, yeah, that switched uh, for me. What kind of, what career I wanted to pursue, right? right? Instead of becoming a Portuguese teacher and staying in Brazil. Right. Um, but I, I would guess that you could probably study in Brazil English. Oh, like, I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what I did for. So I studied English language and literature okay. for my undergraduate in Brazil. Okay. And then when did, when did you make the decision to come to the U.S.? When did you travel here for, for the rest of your, or for your professional <laughs> For my, so it was. So I'm sorry. Uh, I keep on. I keep on misquoting what you're like. What What are you going for now? I said. I know you corrected me uh, when we talked before the show about your dissertation. But mm-hmm. you've already gone beyond that, right? So right now you're going for a doctorate, or yeah. So the dissertation is for my doctorate. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm okay. defending in, in two weeks. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um. So I moved to the U.S three years after I graduated from college in Brazil. Okay. Um, at the time, I was the coordinator of a language school there. Oh, okay. And I was in charge of training teachers. And then that's when I realized that I needed more training myself because I had been trained in college to teach English as a second la- or as a foreign language. Um, but I had not been taught how to train other people to become teachers. Right. And so that's when I decided that I wanted to pursue a master's degree. Okay. And so in 2009, I went to West Virginia. And so all the way from Brazil to West Virginia. Right. And um, it was first supposed to be just a six-month work experience kind of thing. But I really enjoyed living there. I was like, well, you know what? I'm here. I might as well get my master's degree here as well. Right. And so that's what I did. So I, from 2010 to 2013... I got my master's degree in teaching English to speakers of other languages, okay. TESOL and linguistics. And then I went back to Brazil, worked there for for one year, and then I moved to Tucson. Okay. And then that's when I started my PhD here. Okay. And, and at the at the University of Arizona? Or? That's correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now Bash wants love. My yeah, gosh. Yeah, let me save my water here. The kitties <laughs> want love. They're like, oh, we got good people here. So anyway, I can talk their language. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So to speak, right? Yeah. Did you take any uh, feline while you were at school? <laughs> no. <laughs> we were talking about that earlier about how the language of cats meowing and their vocalizations uh, were developed during their domestication and not mm-hmm. as a means of communicating with other cats, right? Yeah, it's just to communicate with us and tell us what they need. Right. Yeah. Right. At that time. Yeah. I also heard something interesting about that uh, as far as the purrs mm-hmm. of cats. Uh, there's something that's called a solicitation purr where it is, mimics the uh, frequency of a baby's cry. Oh, I did not know yeah. that. Yeah, it, but it's a certain very mm-hmm. specific kind of purr that they use when they want attention from us because it somehow we're naturally wired to pick up on that frequency so and they know yeah (laughs) yeah there's there was um i forget what the name of the documentary was but it was a really interesting documentary about cats in a 
some neighborhood in England and they basically put trackers and cameras on a bunch of these cats and watched they they mm-hmm. were outdoor cats and they would find their ways in cat doors into other people's houses and out and they had this you know their roots where they would map where their territory was and it was really kind of an interesting documentary i wish i remember what the name of it was but i'm guessing when you think of the word language of course you're going to think of this career that you're continuing right Mm -hmm. what do you think is the most eye-opening lesson that you've learned about languages so far through your learnings you kind of like this is something that really resonates with me as far as language i think languages are fascinating in terms of like let's say you're a baby, you're learning your first language, mm-hmm. or you are somebody who are learning your second or your third language, right? right? You are going to create sentences that you've never heard in your life or they have never been uttered by anybody, right? right? And so just, I think this fact just by itself makes language very interesting, oh, okay. right? Yeah. The creativity mm-hmm. that is inherent to all languages, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, but also how... There is a structure to it. It's not just some random grouping of words, right? right? Like, like syntax, the way the words are grouped. Grouped together, but yeah. it's not only syntax. It's also the social context mm-hmm. of how you make that syntax work for what you want to accomplish with the language. Right. And so I think there's so many part, moving parts. Right. That it's not just about, oh, I'm going to learn how to speak Spanish, for example, and I just learned the vocabulary and learned the grammatical structure, but you also need to know when to use that certain grammatical structure to accomplish whatever you need to accomplish right. with the act of communication, right? Yeah. That's what guides me when I'm teaching, because I am a teacher. Uh, that's my career, pretty much. I do other things, but I think what I always wanted to be was to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always thinking about how the brain processes language and how you are learning and what kinds of things we pay attention to right. as we are learning um, a second or third language. Right. So that's your mostly your focus in, in your studies going forward is mm-hmm. second language English as a second language English as opposed to mm-hmm. which how is English as a second language different than English as a first language do you think what are the like primary differences age aside mm-hmm. what are the difficulties learning a second language as opposed to learning it when you're younger mm-hmm. so when you're younger well any any human being anywhere is able to learn any language, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you're learning it as a second language, first of all, when you learn a first language, it uses one part of your brain. Right. For you to learn a second language, you're using another part of your brain. Okay. It's not exactly the same um, right. uh, area in your brain. Because right? you're drawing, drawing certain connections between words you already know or concepts you already know. And, and you're new- mapping into a different system, yeah. right? So your second, your third language these are learned in a different hemisphere of your brain, okay. right? Than your first language. Right. And so that's why usually when you're learning, like you already learn, for, ex- for example, for me, I learned English as a, my second language and German and Spanish as my third and fourth language, right? And so every time that I was trying to speak German or trying to speak Spanish, I go back to English. I don't go back to Portuguese. Okay. Because 
the way that where it's stored in my brain, it's where English is stored and not right. where Portuguese is stored. That's it's, it's really, That's really, really interesting. interesting. Yeah, the way the brain works is so fascinating. It's fascinating, definitely. I was focused on the second language, but that makes perfect sense when you talk about drawing those connections. Mm-hmm. When you're learning additional languages, that that would that would be where you were, what you would go back to naturally, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Interesting. And so you were talking about the differences between first and second language. And one of the things that I see a lot with my students and myself as well is the sounds, mm-hmm. right? It's harder for us to pronounce sounds in a second language because we simply can't hear them. Okay. So, for example, Portuguese doesn't okay. have TH, the, th- the TH sound like in thanks or thank, right? right? So, for Portuguese speakers to produce that sound, one, they have to be able to hear it. Right. And so you have to get your ears used to hearing that sound. Right. And also the muscles in your mouth. Okay. They need to be able to produce it. Mm-hmm. And if you're not used to producing that sound, then your muscles in your mouth are not going to be used as well. Right. And so that's why the later that you learn a different language, the harder it is for you to make your mouth, like the actual physiology, right, right, um, adapt, that adapt to, to the new sounds. Interesting. Okay? Biologically speaking, right. both for um, hearing and also for speaking. Because I can't roll my R's. Never have been able to roll my R's. I always have to fake it whenever I have to say something that's um, got an, what is it, an, uh, an R-A in Spanish. Uh, uh-huh. uh, is that what it is in Portuguese too? Yeah, we do have some of those. Some okay. Of those. Um, and so, yeah, I have to fake it by just saying the sound twice because I can't, I can't make that sound. I've never mm-hmm. been able to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's just like it's it just sounds ridiculous. It's just because you haven't practiced. Yeah, that's true. You know? That's true. I, but I maybe I it's because, but you hear it, right? right. And so it's just, right. it's a, it's one step. It's one, yeah. I can, I can identify what it is. I just can't Produce reproduce it. it. Mm-hmm. Differences between teaching written language and spoken usually the the school system teaches them together right mm-hmm. it's it's a function of that second language thing right you have already have those relationships built in your head mm-hmm. so learning them together one will feed into the other and they will both basically stimulate you is there a focus on learning written language over spoken language like is there an area you would focus on more written language versus spoken language? That's a good question, and I think it depends on the context. So, for example, uh, in the field we talk about English as a foreign language and English as a second language. Okay. So, for example, when I was in Brazil, I was teaching English as a foreign language because English is not the main language spoken in Brazil. Right. But here I teach ESL, which is English as a second language. That will determine um, the goals of the students themselves. Okay. So, for example, in Brazil... Uh, a lot of the times I was teaching basically reading mm-hmm. and English for specific purposes because all they needed to do or all the students needed to do was to be able to read an article in English. You mm-hmm. know, uh, they didn't really need to have that. Uh, they didn't really have the need for communication. Right. right? They needed to be able to understand yeah. articles in their field that were published only in English. Okay. Right. And so then the focus is on reading okay so i guess my answer to your question is depends on what the goals of the students are here i teach at the intensive english program which prepares students to go and study in the university 
Okay. So I need to teach them all the skills. They need to be prepared to be um, the reading reading the textbooks. They need to mm-hmm. be able to uh, write essays, write research papers, and right. they also need to be able to communicate a lot. Right. Uh, and be clear in their articulation of arguments because the system here requires the educational system requires a lot of participation on the part of the students, right? right. And so. I think an integrated uh, approach is the best one. Right. So you're teaching the receptive skills, you're teaching reading and listening, which are the receptive, and you're also teaching the productive skills. Okay, so it's writing, all... Writing, speaking. Now that I step back, I guess mm-hmm. it makes sense that it would be mm-hmm. sensitive as far as for what purpose, right? Mm-hmm. I, and I've taken some language courses and I've been unsuccessful because, for example, German, you know, I, I retain some words, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't, there's something with the way my brain works where I need to come up with a mnemonic or some sort of an association and just the looking at the word and the sound connecting those two. I can say words, I can identify things in other languages, but the putting the sentences together and actually remembering the words themselves, unless I have something physical to latch onto or mm-hmm. like an image or something like that i can't it just doesn't doesn't do it in my head or mm-hmm. maybe it doesn't and i just don't recognize it i've learned some basic japanese sayings and i can identify japanese sayings by just mm-hmm. listening to japanese video games mm-hmm. but it's not like i can use them you can recognize them right i can recognize what they are and what mm-hmm. they're used for in some cases whether they're formal or informal mm-hmm. english is one of those animals i think maybe um, it has to do with how i'm a very visual learner right but then if you if i just hear a word i have to spell it out in my in my head Right. But the sound letter correspondence in English is all over the place. Right. Right. So that's what I, I just had in my mind when you were talking about like, oh, yeah, the, yeah. The, the visual. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and from, yeah. And that's one of the things like I've noticed with other languages, not Japanese is mm-hmm. a little bit of a different sort yeah. of thing because you've got the hiragana, the katakana, yeah, and kanji. Mm-hmm. And kanji is just basically words that don't have a meaning. And of course, the, um, the drawing of that language or the writing, I say drawing, it's not drawing, but, but writing. alphabet, yeah. Right. To me, it's very much like drawing, mm-hmm. you know, figures or, or doing um, tribal sort of like patterns and things like that, which is cool, but at the same time, it's very, very rigid. Like if you make one mistake or, or write something, it's not like cursive where you can kind of like, I can write something in cursive <laughs> and you can sort of approximate what it is mm-hmm. whereas that is not the case in something like Japanese where or other Asian origin languages where it's very strict is that something that I'm kind of making up in my head because I'm not used to it as an adult as far as your understanding of those mm-hmm. those types of different languages I wonder what happens to the brain when you are a native speaker of those languages mm-hmm. right when you have to create those uh, drawings, let's say drawings, you know, like the, all the research that says, oh, you, you, when you're writing in cursive, uh, you remember things better. If you write things in cursive, you remember things better than if you, than if you do them in printing? In printing or just typing, right? Huh. And so 
and that's one of the things like I am totally against banning cursive writing from schools. You know, I think that right. is doing the disservice to the students. Right? Is it? Um, they're not banning it; they're just removing it, right? Re- yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're not teaching the students. Right? Because you know, because banning is something like yeah. no more no cursive. More to, for yeah, me. No, I no. can't even sign my name anymore because yeah. that's in cursive. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I misspoke. Yes, uh, but just not teaching, not focusing. Right? Oh, right. everybody has a computer. Everybody's typing, but the connections that you make in your brain when you're writing in cursive mm-hmm. are deeper, uh-huh. right? Than if you're simply just typing. So you remember things a lot better. There is a lot of research on that huh. that you remember things better um, if you write them. Is that because it's a sort of a more of a kinesthetic sort of activity as opposed mm-hmm. to tapping, which, you know, you can tap whether you're tapping on a location or something else. It, it doesn't matter. It's mm-hmm. basically it's just tapping. Right. Mm-hmm. And the movement mm-hmm. like of your hand. Yeah. Right, writing. Interesting. So I'm here and I have no idea. I'm just speculating here with how the brain on um, how the brain understands when you are learning or when you're trying to recognize or when you're trying to produce um those um the alphabet in other languages right right, right. Yeah. so i wonder what the implications of that are for you because i studied a lot about learning english as a foreign language or a right. second language as opposed to learning japanese as a second language right, right. so i think there are implications of that mm-hmm. um and in terms of what is the best way to teach somebody mm-hmm. that completely different system. Right. right. And it's very individualized too, right? I mean, mm-hmm. certain people, they're, they're different learning styles as well. You have to kind of standardize it when you're teaching to uh, when you teach how much you have over your design of your course. Like if you're teaching something to someone, English as a second language, how much mm-hmm. as a teacher you have creative control over how you teach something. Uh, I know that there are some things in the teaching system. My aunt Nora was a math teacher and she, she taught, I believe it was junior high school level math, but there were things where you have to meet these certain uh, criteria. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they will determine which textbooks you use, Mm -hmm. or sometimes they will do these things because they, you know, they have financial constraints or whatever. Mm Optimally, you would want to be able to design a course from the ground up, I'm guessing. But and at the college level, you probably have more ability to do that, right? Um, so I teach um, at a, an intensive English program, right? Right. And so we do have the curriculum for all the levels. Right. And for each course in each level, okay. right? Okay. Um, and but so, that's a guideline, or is that just strict? You have to. Yes, you have to follow those because you're expecting students to achieve certain learning outcomes. Okay. By the end of the course. Gotcha. Right, and so if you stray away from those learning outcomes, then your students are going to be moving up to the next level. Right. Without you, having the knowledge yeah. that they should have acquired you're, in your course. Right. right. You're setting them up for failure, essentially. Exactly. Um, so we do have those student learning outcomes and the curriculum. And they're not just guidelines. You're supposed to be able to meet them, right? right? Or have students meet them. But they're not too specific, right? So you you, want to teach students how to produce a research paper. Or you want to teach the students how to um, do an oral presentation, right? Right. And then the ways you go about that, it's up to you. 
Right. Right. Okay. As long as the students meet the learning outcomes. Okay. So right? so the methods are up to you, mm-hmm. but the the framework of of what they need to learn is standard. standard. It's a standard. Okay. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. I there's got to be a lot of. I like to think of myself as a creative person, but I don't know. Well, I guess I can figure. It's like I I have to come up with some new and interesting way of presenting material or else I get bored with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is there something like that? Is that a consideration going year to year when you're teaching a course is mm-hmm. to keep it fresh oh, and yes. keep it interesting, even though um, not necessarily for, well, I mean, mostly the students, I'm guessing, but also for yourself, mm-hmm. right? To be to keep your passion going. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I always try to think of myself like, if I were my own student, Right. Would I be enjoying this class, you right. know? And then also think about, like you mentioned before, there is a lot of like research on like learning styles and different things, but I try to do things that, oh, maybe I wouldn't enjoy that much, but I know that some of my students would. Right. So you try to diversify as much as you can, mm-hmm. right? In terms of methods or activities that you're doing with them. Right. Okay. And one thing to mention about languages is that it is important to have a, this set of guidelines and student learning outcomes that is also based on second language acquisition research because you can't start, for example, let's say a student who's just learning English and then teach them the present perfect, for example, mm. right? Have, has, plus um, the past participle, right? right? Because that's a form that is more advanced. And so they're not ready yet to tackle that difficult uh, grammatical structure, right? right? They, um, there are other things that they need to learn before that. Okay. And so that's all based on second language acquisition research, right? right? Like right. How, what kinds of structures need to be taught first and what kinds of structures need to be taught at the same time. Right. And so it's important that you have that curriculum to guide you mm-hmm. um, in terms of okay, I can teach this now because they can handle this at this point in their development of the second language. How how much overlap is there in looking at something like how we teach English? How much study, if you're teaching something as English as a second language, how much research do you look at as far as the way we teach English, not as a second language? Is there a consideration there because it seems like the structure needs to be similar. There should be some of that when you're teaching English as a first language level that does that too. Or is that is that mm-hmm. incorrect? I would say, so you're talking about like learning English, like you are American, you go to school and you have right. English classes, right? Right. Like you said, the structure, mm-hmm. like you, you should learn these things first before you learn these things. There is some overlap, but you got to consider that an American student, let's say, going to school learning to take English classes, right? Um, as I did taking Portuguese classes, mm-hmm. you already come in as an expert level in terms of you, your vocabulary, speaking, right? Um, and so you're not coming in at zero level that you can't write or, or read or, or speak in that right. language, right. right? Which is the case when you are learning another language. Okay, And so... I think there is some overlap in terms of how you process some concepts. When you are a child and you're learning your first language, 
you usually start with nouns, right? Right. right. You learn words that mm-hmm. are nouns, and then you move on to verbs, and then you put nouns mm-hmm. and verbs together. Right. Well, the main parts of the sentence are the subject and the predicate, which the noun and the verb, mm-hmm. right? The, the, these are their functions. And so, um, so usually it's nouns and then verbs, and then you start putting in adjectives and learning how to combine those with nouns. And then only later that you learn adverbs, right? Okay, so right. it's sort of the same pattern if you are learning another language, right. right? Again, you go from concrete terms, like you you don't talk about psychological or abstract terms with a level one class, right? right? You exactly. want to start with you start with the basics, the building blocks, exactly, right. Right. right? right. Which is the same thing when you're learning your first language. So we we briefly touched on syntax harmonious arrangement of parts or elements of a language how to make sense because a word only makes sense once you have grammar the word book for example if i just say the word book you don't know if i'm referring to book as a book like you read right or book as in booking a reservation right the words only make sense once you have Grammar, right? Because grammar will tell you what the function of that word is. Right. And, and it's then, almost it's almost impossible to have an individual word for everything out there. Are there languages that do have an individual word for every single thing? There is no overlap between those things. But what do you mean by everything? The word set has over 420 definitions mm-hmm. in English. So... What if instead of the word set, meaning all these different things. You had one word for each. One word for each one. Is that possible? Is that something that would be beneficial? Or is that just, it's not how language develops? It's probably not functional, right? Right. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. mathematically speaking, you have a lot more 20-letter words. (laughs) Probably. Well, but then if you, if you think about like the word set, for example, mm-hmm. the word set can be combined with a lot of words in English, right? Right, with prepositions, right? That also have an equivalent, mm-hmm. or that is one verb. Right. Like, for example, um, let me think here. Can't think of a, a, a phrase of the word set right now, but let's, let's think of put, right? Right. Put out. Like you put out a fire. Right. Right. But you also have extinguish. Right. So English is a language that will have those phrasal verbs like put out when there's also an equivalent. Is the language evolving and trying to make things more simple for their speakers, which actually makes it harder for non-native speakers <laughs> to learn all the phrasal verbs when there is one word equivalent. Right. That is a, a common English as a second language challenge that you are aware of. Oh, yeah. And that's why one of the reasons why I did much better on the GRE than my counterparts, native speakers of English, mm-hmm. was because a lot of the words that they consider difficult are those one word verbs that come from latin i remember one situation in in college i told my professor i i said profound right but i didn't mean i was trying to mean deep because okay. i was talking about deep um i was talking about a physical the physical aspect right, of right like but the, i used the word so so you said the the pool at the profound end Exactly. And she corrected me. She's like, it should be deep. But I was like, well, there's deep, there's profound, right? And in Portuguese, it's profound, right? right. For the profound end of the pool. The profound end of the pool. 
<laughs> that's interesting. That's very profound, right? Yeah, that whole discussion mm -hmm. is profound. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know if having a one word, one on one, if it's is even desirable possible. or yeah. possible yeah. or functional. Yeah. Funny enough, that reminds me of how second language learners also especially at the beginner levels, they do not tolerate the ambiguity of learning another language. So for example, when they learn one thing, they want to use that one thing for that one thing only. Okay. They don't want to learn that, it oh, it multiple. could be this or right. it could be that. Like for example, I'm thinking here modal verbs, right? If I say, he must be home, right? right? Am I saying that he must, like he needs to be home or am I saying that there's a probability that he is home, right? right? So right. using must in different ways. Right. And usually um, beginner level learners have a very low threshold for ambiguity. So they want to mm. use, okay, I learned to use must. I want to use must for every time that I need to say uh, strong necessity, right? right? But right. then they learn, oh, he must be home or he must not be home, you know? which is a different use of the word must. Right. Yeah, I never really thought about it that way, where you would want to use it in a certain way once you learn it, because it's consistent. And then to get that, once you get over that, the multiple meanings of whatever that. And languages are very consistent, but they're also very inconsistent. Or they are consistent in their inconsistencies, right. I think. Here, here's the other thing, too, with something like must be mm -hmm. home. It's, it's the way you say it that basically delivers that, right? Mm -hmm. Or the other sentences or other things around it that mm -hmm. will indicate whether or not he must be home or mm -hmm. he must be home. Mm -hmm. Like he must be home at eight. Right. Like he needs to be at home at eight o'clock. Right. Like that's a rule. Right. 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 Uh, it is eight o'clock. He must be home. Right. Language is complex. I think everything is about the context, right? Who you're talking to, when you're talking, where... Right. In order to fully understand the situation and think critically about it, you need to understand as much about the situation as possible mm -hmm. in addition to just a statement. And I think if you've learned, if you've gone through the process of learning a second language, right, mm -hmm. um, usually people are very self-aware and they're only thinking about themselves because like, you're trying not to make mistakes. You're trying right. to... Show that you, you've learned the language, right? right? But in the process of being so self-aware of what you're saying and trying to communicate, I think a lot of times we lose sight of the communication itself. Instead of focusing on the person and on the context, right? And trying to take that into consideration and use that to shape what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I think when you're when you're learning a second language, you end up focusing, paying attention too much to yourself as opposed to who you're communicating with. Right. Right. But isn't that something that comes with comfort as you, you become more comfortable with the language and its use and using it and practicing it? I think so. But I feel like, you know, you've always, I, I, I think I've, I've had this experience of meeting people who have very low levels of like English ability, for example, let's say that. But they are great communicators. Right? right. And one of the reasons why they are great communicators is because they're not paying too much attention to themselves they're, and to whether they're making the correct um, a verbal agreement, right? right? Or they're using the right verb tense or 
the right word. They're just focused on the conveying other, the message. I gotcha. You okay. know. Or adjusting to someone else's communication style. Exactly. Making someone feel more comfortable with what they're saying mm-hmm. by adapting you the way that you're speaking to whatever that is. Mm-hmm. In order to communicate effectively in a second language, you would have to get beyond that. You would have to get mm-hmm. up to a point where you're not focusing on using the right words yourself. But it's, it's, it's a step mm-hmm. to me is what I think of it mm-hmm. as. But it, maybe it's not. Is that what you're saying? Is, no, is I, th- I think it is, but I think we can get there quicker if we realize that we're realize doing realize that we're doing it. Yeah. yeah, and using language more as a tool to communicate, as opposed to being so focused on the language itself as the as the goal. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. The goal is communication. Right, exactly. Maybe I shouldn't be saying this to a teacher because there are people out there who correct grammar or correct pronunciation of things or spelling or Mm -hmm. or things like that and are very very strict at following those rules which Mm -hmm. i guess you know i can understand but and maybe this is just a function of the way i perceive communication if someone says something to me and i understand what that means Mm -hmm. but it's not the way that i say it Mm -hmm. if i'm using the word again i would say it back to them in the way that i say it Mm -hmm. right or the concept that i use for it or whatever Mm -hmm. i won't I won't point out or say to them, that's wrong, you you mispronounce this, mm-hmm. or you you called it epitome instead of epitome, or mm-hmm. avocado, you said avocado. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's my favorite thing right now. I'm gonna call them avocados from now on instead of avocados. But you know what I mean. It's I like, will. instead of correcting someone, if I understood what they said, mm-hmm. job well done, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, success. Mm-hmm. But I guess that's not the same way it is with written language. People who correct what other people say, even though they understand what they're saying, that's the thing for written language, as opposed to did my idea or what I was trying to say get across, yes or no. But you're also communicating in writing. If you're in the South, you've got certain colloquialisms that aren't the same as in other areas. or And if you say, y'all, and you go, no, it's all of you, or mm-hmm. no, it's this. Mm-hmm. Writing y'all mm-hmm. is different than writing all of you. Or The written language is, it is more formal, right? right. And it's, it lives on longer, I would say, than just when you say something. Right. Right. When you're talking to someone, then you always have the possibility of explaining yourself, right? Correct. Or like correcting yourself at that right. time. Uh-huh. And I mean correcting by okay, explaining or clarifying something if the person didn't understand. Right. But if you're writing something, you're not going to be there to tell your reader what you meant. I think that's the beauty of, of language itself. It's just the different ways that you can say things. Right, right. right. Before we get into the video game portion, I guess. Mm-hmm. Is there anything about language that would be eye-opening for us as first language speakers about something that second language speakers experience that's different? I think once you learn a different language, you learn to think in different ways too. Uh-huh. So for example, I am way more objective in English than I am in Portuguese. Okay. If I tell you a story in English, it's going to be a very different way that I would be telling the same story in Portuguese, right? right? And so I think languages shape how you express yourself. And if you only know one language, 
you automatically assume that people are thinking the same things that you're thinking. Right. Or you have the same assumptions. And I'm talking about like general assumptions. There's something called conceptual metaphors. Okay. And conceptual metaphors are very language specific. In English, we all know time is money. Right. right. And so the way you talk about time is the same way that you talk about money, even the same verbs. Right. So you spend time, you spend money, you waste time, you waste money. Right. You buy time, you buy things with money. Right. right. So that's the way you understand time and money. Okay. Right? And that's how you and you don't even think about it when you are talking, you're using the same verbs. And the reason why you're talking about using the same verbs is because it's the same conceptual metaphor. Right. But arguments in English. The conceptual metaphor of arguments is arguments are wars. Uh, you have sides. You fight. You win an argument. You lose an argument. So you talk about arguments as wars. But if you come from a culture that sees arguments as, let's say, dance, they're going to use the same verbs and the same words that they use to describe a dance to talk about arguments. Okay. The way we talk about things is so ingrained that you don't even think about it. And so when you learn a second language, you realize, oh, maybe this language doesn't see that same concept the same way that I that my language does. And you didn't even think about it. Right. 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 Um, so like I said, when you when you're talking about arguments, maybe this language doesn't see an argument as a fight. Right. And so they will use different words and that changes com completely how you see an argument that's one of the beautiful things about learning a different system and a different way of looking at the world right mm -hmm. you can only do by learning a second language, a second language. well i guess i have to mm -hmm. learn a second language now <laughs> conceptual metaphors Concept is that yeah i think the linguist that started talking about it was George Lakoff in like 1960. Okay. And I think it's just fascinating. And it's easy to learn vocabulary of another language once you learn those conceptual metaphors. Right. right. It's also a way to um, use something as a mnemonic or something to to mm -hmm. remember, which is what you would do as mm -hmm. a second language, as a, the different connections like we were talking about before that you make as learning mm -hmm. a second language as opposed to your native mm -hmm. speaking language, right? Mm -hmm. When you're talking about a programming language, computer programming, mm -hmm. if the syntax is off, mm -hmm. whatever you're trying to do in the computer, it doesn't understand, right? Quote, mm -hmm. unquote, understand. Mm -hmm. So syntax is very important in, in that situation. Is syntax as important as in programming languages? Either you understand the... The syntax or you don't, whereas with language and communication, there's nuance. Yeah, it's definitely not a yes or no, yes, you understand or no, you don't understand. Right. But I think if you choose the wrong grammatical structure for what you're trying to say, right. you, can, you can come across as rude or you can... You can get beat up probably. You cannot be, yeah. <laughs> like for example, what comes to my mind is like passive voice, right? Okay. So... Why would somebody choose to say mistakes were made as opposed to so-and-so made this mistake or I made this mistake? A research study, they had native English speakers and they have, I believe it was native Spanish speakers. And they showed a video of this um, kid playing soccer inside the living room and knocking down a vase and breaking the vase, right? Mm -hmm. So some languages would choose to 
um, use the passive voice just to, to say it was an accident. And other languages would Same say bit. the subject or the kid broke the vase. Right. As opposed to the vase was broken or the vase got knocked off. Right. right? And so I think learning these nuances, I think it's what it's important. And that that's um, what I try to teach my students when I teach them grammar. It's like, well, but if you if you choose to use the passive voice, this is what you're trying to do, or this is what you're avoiding, right? right, right. You're avoiding either, either you can use the passive voice because you don't know who did it, or you're trying to avoid to say who did it. And so I think it's it's very much connected with meaning, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So I don't think it's a matter of do you understand or not, or do you convey the message or not. But how do you convey exactly what you want the, to say? Yeah, you can include or exclude certain details, uh -huh. but that's different than using the passive voice. If we're excluding details, you can do that in any language. I think it's it's very interesting um, to what extent you can exclude details in a language and to what extent you can't. Okay. Like, for example, in English, you always have to have a subject. Right. right, you have to say she or he, he did this, she did this, right? Right. Um, but in Portuguese and Spanish, you don't have to have a subject because we conjugate the verb, so the verb tells you who the subject is. In terms of gender, right? So if I'm telling my mom a story about, oh, I went to my friend's house to record a, a podcast, for example, right? I have to tell her what the gender of the friend is, because gen friend, the word friend in Portuguese is either amigo or amiga, right. right? And so if I'm telling her, there's no way that I can exclude the gender because I'm going to have to say my friend. And if I say my friend is, or my neighbor, right? right. I have to say vizinho, vizinha. So I can't exclude that detail. But if I'm telling the same story to a friend in English, if I just say, oh, I went to my neighbor's house or I went to my friend's house, I'm excluding the detail of, the gender of my friend. Right. And so certain things can be excluded because of how the language works. Right. Do you as a teacher learn about other people's languages as a part of teaching English as a second language? I definitely try to learn as much as I can about, of course, I'm not fluent in Arabic, I'm not fluent in Chinese, right. but I studied what kind of errors people from that language background tend to make right. so that I can address them better as their English teacher, okay. right? For example, I know that Arabic speakers have a tremendous amount of difficulty with the p sound, the P sound, right? Okay. Yeah. Because they only have the, the voiced one, they have the B, but they don't have the P. So I know that when I'm teaching my students, I will focus on Okay, you you gotta say paper, not baber, you right, know. Right. So I know that I can anticipate their mistakes right. and then target them, mm -hmm. right? Or things like they say before three days as opposed to three days ago because right. they are translating literally from how they would say it. Right. right? Exactly. So I think it makes me a better teacher if I can anticipate their mistakes and understand where they're coming from. If I have a basic knowledge of how their language works, or like. Chinese, I, I don't think it has verb tenses, it only has aspect. So knowing that, I'm better able to teach, okay, no, in English we do have tense and we have aspect. Right. So I think it is important. When I was teaching English as a foreign language in Brazil, everybody spoke the same first language as I did. You're so, all approaching it from the same perspective exactly. as Portuguese speakers, mm -hmm. whereas English as a second language, you've got different folks from exactly. all over. Mm -hmm. 
Well, let's talk about how much you love video games. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and how much you play video games, which is... Zero. Zero. <laughs> Zero, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. You didn't grow up with video games or arcade games or anything like that in your um, household, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or even television. Yes. No. We did have a television, one of those old ones with, I don't even know what they're called in English, like the dial buttons. You okay, know? yeah. I remember it was functional because I have this memory of this snake documentary that was on at some point mm-hmm. and the sound of music um but that that's as far as my memory goes when it comes to tv in my apartment and i don't have one here i've never had i've never owned really a tv right do you use the computer oh yeah to, to, okay so <laughs> i so, watch so, i watch movies and right. i watch series but having a tv is something that was never really part of my life right um Especially on my mom's side of the family, we were always reading. So right. it was always reading or doing crossword puzzles, and you know, and and so it was just something that I I did not grow up with. Right. Um, but teaching, I've taught all age groups, right? And I've had the experience of, especially in Brazil, um, of teaching students of all ages that actually they tell me, oh, I learn English basically by playing video games. Right. You know, and then this is actually a very big area of research in linguistics mm-hmm. is um, how people learn languages simply by playing video games. Right. 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 And, and I would guess it would be yeah. similar for watching television shows or watching mm-hmm. movies or um, something like that. Or do you think it's different because I, there's an interactive component exactly. that's in video games that isn't in those other exactly. things? Exactly. Yeah. With watching TV and movies, yes, it's very good for your listening skills, and but it's passive. Right. 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 But video games, especially the interactive ones, right, you are actually talking to somebody or like... Like there's a storyline that you have to follow. You have to act upon that. It's interaction, even if it's just you and the video game, not somebody else. Right, right. right. You have to understand the situation and then Mm -hmm. also act upon that situation. So there's context in there that Mm -hmm. you would be associating with the language that you wouldn't be doing necessarily Mm -hmm. with the movie or a television show. That's why if you just have your kid watching TV all the time in Spanish, they're not going to become fluent in Spanish, right. right? It's just passive. Right. There is no interaction there. Right. right. And I think another very good aspect of games in general is the immediate feedback that you receive. Uh-huh. Right. If you try to jump and it didn't work, then you realize that, okay, that's not working. I have to do something else. So the immediate feedback, I think it's very important for language learning. Yeah. And I think games do that. Oh yeah, they do that very, very well. well. Yeah, right. I didn't even think about that, but yeah, you were very right. That's that's um, another thing. If you you know you know when you're making a mistake, mm-hmm. um, in some games, but mm-hmm. mo- yeah, but in general, it, you get the feedback immediately in some way, shape, or form, mm-hmm. right? And then it teaches you, right? Right. As you go. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There's a, there's a a concept in video games called X plus one. You start with the basics like movement or things mm-hmm. like that and then you add something more complex onto it and you mm-hmm. just keep on going and mm-hmm. adding new concepts to it mm-hmm. if you start too complex mm-hmm. like learning all of <laughs> all of a language or all mm-hmm. of how you're supposed to navigate or all the powers that you get it's overwhelming it's overwhelming it's too and, complex yeah exactly so it's like there's a structure there too that mm-hmm. that is utilized to get people into the video games there, i know that there are certain trends and one for example is 
studying how people learn languages just by playing video games. But another um, area of research in that aspect is how to gamify language learning. And right. So trying to emulate what steps are taken in the structure of a video game mm -hmm. and then try to bring that into the classroom. Yeah. So I think there was these two main veins, like yeah. studying how people acquire a language through video games and also how to use that into the classroom. Right. Or and then, of course, let's use this game to try to accomplish this and, and right. so on and right. so forth. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. interesting. Have you been exposed to any, any kind of games from your students? Like, I'm going to bring up Simlish. Have you heard of The Sims before? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's basically. They were big in Brazil too. Yeah. Okay. But you never played them and you just had students who would really be into. And friends. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, is, what is your perception of what the whole purpose of uh, Sims is? Like if you were as, as just someone who's never played the game, mm -hmm. what, what is the purpose of playing The Sims? <laughs> what would you think? Uh. I don't know. I guess you just like manipulate all the the characters, right? Yeah. And you can create different stories. I honestly don't know. Okay. Well, let's let's go back back in history. William Ralph White. He used to work at a company called Broderbund, and he made a game called Raid on Bungling Bay, which was essentially a. I may have to explain some of these terms to you, but it was a a two D um, shoot 'em up. So. You basically something like maybe space invaders or ships mm -hmm. where ships are are trying to go to a goal or attack something or mm -hmm. you know and you are trying to defend that mm -hmm. place or you're trying to eliminate the ships to allow you to get to another place and the game takes place on a on a planet on another planet not earth and you're supposed to stop this evil you know, this evil group of people from taking over. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just basically shooting and sort of a top-down map and, and stuff like that. That came out for the Commodore 64. Are you familiar with what a Commodore 64 is? <laughs> Probably not. No. <laughs> okay. Commodore 64 was a was an early home computer that was more of the, the bargain. It had 64K of uh -huh. memory. That's uh -huh. 64K. How amazing it was. Yeah. <laughs> We're not talking, no, no, not M, not G, K, okay. <laughs> thousands. Yeah. Anyway, so that came out in 1984. And then as he was, you know, kind of figuring out how he was going to go forward with game design and things like that, he had ideas uh, involving simulating a helicopter. In 1986, he met with an investor named Jeff Braun, Braun, who wanted to make an investment in computer games. And William Wright has called this meeting the world's most important pizza party because from that meeting, they formed a company called Maxis. And that company, Maxis, created their first game, which is called SimCity, which is basically a sim simulation of uh, building a city and how things you know work in a city and how you've got your infrastructure how roads would work and things like that so it was more of a simulation of how a city grows mm -hmm. essentially and that was 1988 that was 1989 is when that was originally introduced that was the first sim game and beyond that he created sim earth which simulated how life on earth was created essentially 
sim ant. <laughs> Not sim ant as an aunt. Sim ant as in the little creature, the ant. The insect. Uh, the insect. And other games in Maxis were all sim. They were basically, you know, uh, how can we take a situation that we want to simulate and do that and create a, a series that will allow someone to play in this this sandbox of watching something grow or watching something, you know, um, interact mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have exposure to. And are you the one player or do you manipulate all of them? Lately, they've been calling them God games. Mm-hmm. So basically, like you... Like Big Brother? Well, <laughs> like you. you are the one who makes the decisions, you want to cause a weather system over here like for example in sim earth if you want to raise mountains over here mm-hmm. it's going to change the weather patterns but but you make those determinations as the player you're you're basically introducing sort of environmental things and then the system itself takes care of the the rest right it, mm-hmm. it basically responds to how you are creating things how you are doing things so in cases of like SimCity, you decide you're going to make a highway go from this end to this end. How do people in the city interact and how does that city grow based on making that change mm-hmm. in, in the city itself? So that's why it's, it's, it's basically simulating things that go on in, in the world. What ended up happening to William after he had put out these games that's basically what put Maxis on the map. You know, the other games weren't as popular, but everyone knew if you wanted to play something simulator, they were the gold standard in simulation games at that point in time. Then EA uh, bought Maxis in 1997. And this is kind of something where a tragedy happens to William in the early 90s. Essentially, there was a, a fire storm in o- in the Oakland area, so he lost his house as a as a as a a result of a of a fire, right? Mm-hmm. That that what one of these like forest fires or something like that. It was a fire that destroyed his home. Ever since that happened, what he thought about in his game designer head was sort of a virtual dollhouse kind of idea. So that is where The Sims comes from. You can call The Sims a virtual dollhouse. That's what it is at its base. You know, you can tell stories and you can have, you know, your different characters in here do certain things as jobs and you just basically watch them interact, right? Mm -hmm. And there have been games that did that before, but not to the extent that this, you know, the the one that they wanted to make was going to do. EA owns them at this point and the board of directors at Maxis thinks his partner at Maxis, who created the company with him, has been quoted as saying that the board at Maxis thought he was nuts. <laughs> but the EA portion of the of the company, the you know the share, they were very interested in this idea of a virtual dollhouse. And the first Sims was published in the year two thousand, and it became Wright's biggest success at the time. The latest Sims that is out is called the sims 4 and as of the third quarter of the fiscal year 2019 the sims 4 has grossed over a billion dollars in lifetime revenue and that yeah (laughs) and that is that is saying something let's get into the more interesting part for you which is simlish 
So Simlish is the language that these simulated people talk to each other in. As a design decision, they could make it in English uh-huh. or a, or an actual language, but there they, were a couple of concerns with that. Did they hire a linguist to create a language like they do for like the Hobbit or, you know? No, they did not. Here, Here's the interesting part of this How language. How did it work? <laughs> yeah, I was under the impression that it was developed as a language, kind of mm-hmm. like you would mm-hmm. hire linguists and they would create something like Klingon for the, the net, Star Trek Next Generation, mm-hmm. or as you said, The Hobbit, or mm-hmm. it was the idea of using real life languages, but then you have translations that need to occur and you have to define everything in that language. And, you know, that would take a lot of time. So, what they ended up doing was instead of that, they would use dialogue that would express emotions and just be nonsensical. So, the different characters would would use consistent phrases for things, but those phrases were just nonsense, just nothing. And who created those <laughs> were the actors. So essentially, here's what here's what what happened. Simlish would be best as a language made up of gibberish words that could not be translated. It was done intentionally so that the dialogue's meanings would be left on the individual imagination of the player. And that would be based on the delivery of those lines as opposed to trying to establish what the words actually mean. So what are your thoughts on that? I have lots of thoughts on that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So just just explain something to me. Yeah. Was it by phrases or individual words? Okay. As I get closer to the to the way it was originally done mm-hmm. and the way it's developed, you'll kind of see. Mm-hmm. I, initially, the vocabulary of a sim was much smaller because the scope of the game was smaller. Mm-hmm. It was basically you were building a house and you were inhabiting that house with little people mm-hmm. that would have jobs and the only way you you knew how they felt was little icons would appear over their head that said they were happy in one area or dissatisfied so if someone had to go to the bathroom they'd have for example a little toilet that appears over their head and then a little arrow that shows down which means that they need to go to the bathroom pretty soon or they're going to want to go to the bathroom what they would do is they would come up with words for the situations that they had. So it was a limited vocabulary, but it was made up. It was completely nonsensical. And how they created it was that Simlish was improvised by actors, Stefan Kieran and Jerry Lawler. I'm bad at pronouncing things. <laughs> they served as the Simlish actors because they were trying to generate a language by actually having a computer, you know, like a consistent thing. But they were running into problems with that because it didn't, because it sounded simulated. It sounded like it was a computer saying it and not an actual feeling human being. Even when the feeling human beings were trying to convey what these things meant, Mm -hmm. it still sounded synthetic. So that's why they had the actors? That's why they had the actors improvise these words write the basically the creator of the the original sims says that um he said that it was a right decision to have people improvising because they can improvise emotions 
or you know how words would sound better with an emotion as opposed to a computer generated language which wouldn't take that into account mm-hmm. so it was just vocabulary words not a grammatical structure there were like phrases uh-huh. but it was like onomatopoeic expressions basically the development of simlish it started out as just made up stuff but then as they went on inversions of the sims they took these made up things and kind of fashioned the meaning around them so so it started out since there was a very limited number of situations that these sims would find in and phrases they would say and things mm-hmm. that they would say it was a small vocabulary that developed but it developed from improvisation it wasn't like you know it wasn't like they thought of these things it was just like the situation is this so they say something and then they applied the conditions of that situation to the different words to figure out so they did it kind of backwards right Mm -hmm. they basically came up with the phrase and then as the different versions came out it's like well because of the situation we used this in in the previous game, this means this, this means this, and this means this. But together. But together in a phrase, uh-huh. right? Which doesn't really have much of a sentence structure in the in the beginning. But then as the games kept on coming out, they started to sort of fashion a, a language around these things. <laughs> so. Okay. Can I interrupt you? Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I see that your professor brain is just going full, of, full of questions. Yes. So, like, in the beginning, I said, oh, one of the things that fascinate me the most about language, fascinates me the most about language is the recursive nature, right? The creativity aspect of it. Right, right. That it can create any sentence, an original sentence, right? That it may have not been said by anyone in mm-hmm. the world ever. Yep. Yep, and exactly. so, but to do that, you got to have syntax, right? Right. You got to have some pattern, right? Right. To which things can be verbs, which things can be nouns, mm-hmm. and if you're doing it backwards with words and then phrases, and you're trying to apply them, and then as the the game grew right Right. and there are more situations and you're trying to apply things but how do you do that if the language is not recursive in the first place right right well it started out as not being recursive in the first place because just the nature of the scope of the game Uh and then that was limited right right right. and then as they take the next step Mm -hmm. they need to remain consistent with some of the things that they use like Mm -hmm. i remember I don't know why I remember deg deg, which is okay mm-hmm. <laughs> in Simlish. It's mm-hmm. deg deg. It's like, okay. Mm-hmm. Or like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Or yes, I'm going to do it. Or, you know, it could apply to different situations. So the mm-hmm. first one was sort of just made up nonsense. But mm-hmm. then they tried to take those things and and turn them into things like verbs and things mm-hmm. like nouns. Mm-hmm. But it was still just in general, just nonsense. They tried to remain consistent. Uh-huh. But whose syntax did they use to apply, to put these words to use in other contexts? (laughs) Because I'm thinking here, like if you're using, so my mind is going back to Lewis Carroll, right? And that poem Jabberwocky, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yeah, It's basically a bunch of nonsense words mixed with 
we real words, right? Right. But you can figure out the meaning of the nonsensical words because of the context and because of the syntax, right? right. You can say, oh, this is a verb, this is a noun, right. this is the subject of this sentence, right? Mm -hmm. But because it's following English patterns, right? Right, right. But this so, is this is following patterns, but they're patterns of behavior as opposed to patterns of grammatical behavior. Correct. Okay, so you're watching your little, like character. let's say, yeah, your character is uh, is on fire, and he starts saying things because he's on fire. Uh -huh. What is he saying? You don't know, but you kind of have an idea of what he's saying because he's on fire. So you, you put the context into it based on whatever the situation you see the sim is in. So the idea was it to be something that could be played by anybody anywhere in the world that spoke any language and they would be able to make out the meaning of what they were saying based right. on what they were seeing. Based on what they were seeing. And they wanted to be they wanted to, to be gibberish so there wouldn't be any preconceived sort of like thoughts of this means this and this means that mm -hmm. and that means you know th they left that out because they wanted to be more about what the character was feeling or what the character was doing or how the character's mood was or mm -hmm. you know it, it, more expressive which makes sense why they would have actors doing improvisational lines to create quote unquote the language because they didn't mm -hmm. want it to mean anything they wanted it to mean nothing mm -hmm. <laughs> They wanted it to reflect more emotion. Mm -hmm. But then as the game developed, that's when the structure started to emerge. It had to be repetitive and consistent. Correct. And then people started seeing patterns like certain nouns in Sims in the Sims universe are now identified in more current versions. Nubu translates to baby, which can be used the term of endearment, but it also can refer to a crib. But not to a baby? Well, no, 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 to a baby in a crib. Oh. But you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's it's like, hey, baby, like, mm -hmm. you know, like you say it, not creepy, like that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but hey, you can make, hey, could you get that for me, baby? You know, like a term of endearment uh -huh. as opposed to. And that's Nubu, mm -hmm. but that wasn't what it meant initially. They didn't have an idea, mm -hmm. right? Once they start creating the words in their dictionary, then now when you've got, um, people who are actors who are put in the roles where they're supposed to record things based on situations as these new things emerge. Um, so they're using Nubu for baby as in the term of the endearment as well? Right. But it was originally just a, a baby in a crib. No, it was originally just a nonsense word. It was Nubu. <laughs> no, I know, but it meant. It developed into being both those things. So in the game, Nubu means like a term of endearment, but it also means baby. Because of English? Because they, they wanted to, yeah, sort of. <laughs> because like that doesn't make any sense in Portuguese. We no, have the word no, it bebe, doesn't. It right? doesn't. But you don't but, call but that anybody. Would, yeah, that would, that would be why it developed. I mean, it was, it was developed by English speakers. So uh, I would make, it would make sense that that is correct. That they would apply. Yeah, that mm -hmm. they would apply their own um colloquialisms mm -hmm. in translating this language but initially there wasn't i mean they they they've done this retroactively where mm -hmm. they uh watch these things and what they're saying and put them in situations and develop the dictionary based on 
starting with nonsense mm-hmm. and then just kind of trying to apply the nonsense in kind of a sort systematic of, way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sort of, which is an interesting way to develop a language or is it, it's not okay. It doesn't seem like it's a, it's a, an effective way of developing a language. It just seems like, I don't know. Well, it's kind of a, like, to me, it sounds like it's, a, it's trying to mirror English. Uh, well, yeah, o- almost certainly now yeah. it, it is right. Uh-huh. It's it's not. Yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't refer to. I mean, as far as the gendered nouns and things like that, mm-hmm. there aren't those concepts in the Simlish. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's why. Yeah, Simlish. I don't know. You know, I was thinking of the movie Arrival. I don't know if you've seen it. Oh, yeah, yeah. When they they actually hired linguists to create the aliens language, right? Mm-hmm. And that was a circle because they didn't um, see present, past and future and so on and so forth. Right. Right, so it was a it was a language that was clearly distinct from the way lang- English speakers perceive time, right? Right. Um so if I were developing a language, I think I would start with the syntax of the language and then you apply. Right, right. Right, but they were doing it backwards. Yeah, right? and, and, then and, they I were... th- and I think the reason it was done backwards was because when the game came out, they didn't know it was going to be a big hit, right? Uh-huh. So they didn't know whether... They did it for the scope of the game. Right, right. right. And, I, and I think if they would have maybe, you know, like I know that some developers would want to go that extra mile um, and kind of like, like you mentioned, you mentioned like the Hobbit, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, in a Tolkien-esque kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, he, he developed the history before he developed the stories, mm-hmm. right? He developed the whole universe and you can do that for a game, but within, within the focus of what the game is supposed to be, mm-hmm. does that matter? Mm-hmm. Right. You're building a house, you're building a dollhouse, you're putting your little dolls in certain situations and they're reacting to those situations in an mm-hmm. emotional way. How much accurate language do you need at that point? Mm-hmm. But then as people start to play the games more and more, that is when you start trying to either, you can either create a whole new language based on that mm-hmm. Or you can try and retrofit what you have in place right. mm-hmm. to fit those situations, which mm-hmm. is which is what they decided to do mm-hmm. going forward. Mm-hmm. So you had your original actors who worked on the first two, and then you had when they added things like, so initially emotions were either positive or negative, mm-hmm. right? But then they added sort of levels of those things. Like you could be really happy or you can just be satisfied, mm-hmm. right? And as they added those, they had to create words. So what they would do to the actors is they, would, they basically gave them time constraints and word usage. You have to use this word this many times and this word this many times, and then everything else can be made up. Mm-hmm. So that is how they've developed the Simlish language. That kind of leads to an interesting thing where in Sims 4, they have musical artists who do Simlish versions of their actual songs. So you go and you play the radio and a Katy Perry song comes on. In Simlish. In Simlish. My thought was, so then that translates into English or translates into a language. 
But now I don't know because based on the history and the way it developed, uh-huh. how big is that dictionary and, and what does that mean? Right. And is it, is it that developed or is it just about the emotions and how you're singing it and so on and so forth? But yeah, they, there are things where they say they've got these things, they've got a rudimentary dictionary of what uh-huh. these different words mean based on how they've been used in the past, uh-huh. but no, but no sentence structure really. It doesn't sound like it. Yeah. It just sounds like you've got a bunch of words in a group. So how do you expe- express, for example, future or past or conditionals? How do you do that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> It's above my pay grade. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I, I, I guess you could, you could talk to the people who develop Simlish, but yeah. as far as the franchise itself, the general manager of the Sims at large is focusing more on the emotions of these things and less on the, the actual language, it seems. Mm-hmm. It seems like a hierarchy of needs sort of thing as opposed to... Um, concrete. Co- yeah, concrete communication. Uh-huh. In part because they don't they want you to... I mean, I guess if, if, you're, if it fixed the function of the original design, which was just to make it, you know, like they're saying things... And you want to get that, what they mean based on their feelings and how the, you know, how the character is feeling as opposed to trying to make that association based on what they're saying, mm-hmm. right? It makes sense to kind of do this, but they, they're sort of doing it backwards where they're trying to develop the language, you know, <laughs> in reverse, I guess. Uh-huh. Does that, I mean, does, does that Or make, they just wanted to leave it to the player's imagination right right right, right. just so that you can relate to it on a personal level to whatever to whatever degree and maybe yeah. make those associations on on what those word mean words mean yourself like yeah. maybe dig dig means something else to you than it does to me mm-hmm. uh maybe sul 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 they say a lot mm-hmm. too which is so, basically aloha which is they say sul sul to hello and sul sul to goodbye so is it a pattern that See, like my brain started looking for patterns in this. Right. And then right. like it looks like the words are you're telling me like are two syllable I, words that were repeated. Yeah, well no, so, they're, they're not always so, that way. So, sul sul and, and deg deg. deg. And yeah. um yeah, nubu, I guess mm-hmm. that you know, they're two syllables, right? Mm-hmm. But I think there are more complex I mean, you know, I don't play it a lot. Mm-hmm. I do know some I've I've listened to some songs. Um There's a band that I like called Data Rock, and they did a, a version of their song in Simlish, mm-hmm. which sounds just like it does in English. Mm-hmm. And I can, here's the other interesting thing. I hear it in Simlish, but I also, I, when I'm hearing it in Simlish, I'm thinking about what it means in English, English. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're making the association So there. I'm making my own associations to what those things mean. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's the other thing, too, with, with these songs. How much of that is, are they also retrofitting the language to what the song is saying, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's a big question mark. You know, people don't know if that's the case or not. They're trying, people, you know, being inquisitive by nature, humans are trying to figure that stuff out, trying mm-hmm. to figure out the patterns, uh-huh, right? And the yeah. players who love the game try and figure out those patterns. Mm-hmm. But when they're doing that, they kind of detract from the overall 
purpose of the game, which is there's this simulated human. You know, I want to create my human who does this thing and is a surfer and has a family and language. It's an essential part of the game in one sense because it gives you an idea that communication is occurring uh-huh. on a level that's verbal. It gives you the idea that in, that information is being conveyed, but uh-huh. it doesn't have a direct one-to-one relationship of uh-huh. this is what it's being used and this is the syntax and uh-huh. this is a verb and this is a noun uh-huh. and this is an adjective. Like uh-huh. there's consistency. Uh-huh across languages in that way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was under the same impression where it was a developed language yeah. for the purpose of The Sims. And I'm thinking here, how about the sounds that the language allows? Uh-huh. Because each language has its own constraints, right? So like, for example, consonant clusters. Okay. English only allows certain consonant clusters, right? right. Like, for example, you can have S-T-R together, like street, or, like, for example, in Japanese, a syllable always has to have a vowel sound. So right. that's why usually when Japanese speakers learn English, they tend to Use inc- the, yeah. include vowels in between the consonant clusters, right? right. Because a, a syllable in Japanese has to have a vowel, right? right? right. But not necessarily... Um, well, the syllable, yes, but not, but the, the consonant, English allow, allows consonant clusters that Japanese doesn't. Right. Right, so if like an incredibly difficult task to just tell an actor, improvise. So improvise and create words. How are they creating those words? Well, they're just making them up, right? And if they just improvise the word based on like if if they're given a situation, this Sim receives a present and Mm -hmm. is very happy. Mm -hmm. And you have to use this word and this word. But anything else can be a you know just make it up does it sound like english does it sound like japanese it's been compared to to hispanic uh origin sort of languages Uh it's been the sounds have been compared to that Mm -hmm. before Mm -hmm. but i don't know i mean to me it just sounds like an alien language it's Mm -hmm. like someone who's speaking dutch i mean to me i hear all those consonants and all that stuff and it just sounds like it's it you know, i know it it's not gibberish because my mm-hmm. friend my friend yost he's from the netherlands originally he speaks dutch and dutch sounds so foreign to me just the way that it seems to me there are a lot of consonant sounds uh-huh. in there and you can't even differentiate when like a word starts and when a word ends right right they're just talking end to end it's like almost like you know run on sentence right Uh, so my i guess my question was was there a pattern when even creating those initial words right you know yeah it seems like no you as someone who studies language you have lots of questions and and (laughs) are challenging why they're saying this stuff. But I, I think the reason is they, they, they'll just keep on saying it's nonsense. Mm-hmm. It does, it's not a language. But even nonsense, to be a language, it has to have patterns. Yeah. Right? Uh, and here, here, and here, things that it allows and things that it doesn't allow you to do. Phonetics and phonology, right? Yes, that's what I'm thinking. Like, yeah. for example, English, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. The P, the T, and the K right. are aspirated in the beginning of a word. But or the beginning of a stressed syllable, but they're not if they are preceded by s. So that's a rule that all English words follow. Right. What is the rule in English? Right. You know, people 
who've done studies about the way Simlish works, mm-hmm. they, they say that mostly what they've seen, Simlish distinctive sounds comprise of phonetics and phonology more in common with baby talk than it does English. Okay, so more bilabial consonants like mm, Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, I yeah, sure. <laughs> you're the you're the you're you're the linguist here. I'm I'm just uh, I'm just the video game guy. But yeah, mm-hmm. that's that. Ba mm-hmm. Yeah. Those initial syllables that babies usually babies in every language actually. Why why is mother usually a word that begins with M in mostly all languages, like at least Western languages, right? Oh yeah. Because yeah, I never it's thought a, of that. because it's an easy sound to, to make. To make. Ma, ma, ma. Right. Yeah. Huh. What about these things where the sound a dog makes is different in different languages? Mm-hmm. What is that about? <laughs> well, I think it's people applying the phonetics of their language to, to what the they sound. are hearing. Okay, <laughs> exactly. Okay, yeah. so so bow wow doesn't that sound makes like, no sense to me. To me, it makes no sense too. So yeah. that's why I don't know how. But like, is it bow wow in English? Is not woof woof? Woof woof. You can say woof woof. Uh-huh. People say bow wow too. Um, but mostly woof woof. Well, in Portuguese, it's ow ow. Ow ow. Yeah. Okay. You're taking a sound and you're trying to make sense of it. Right. Based on your system in your head. Yeah. And baby talk, it's it's pretty much the same, right? Babbling in every language, right? right? A baby. But in child's development, when they start trying to mimic sounds and things like that, they hear. I don't know. I what, guess what, they're trying to do that since they they start. From the from, from they vocalize well, exactly yeah. yeah and then they they will tend to repeat the sounds that they are listening and so that's why any human baby can learn any language no matter where they are in the world right yeah. it depends on what they're exposed to I don't know if you're interested in this you're going to yeah. start playing Sims and trying to decipher I'm going to have Sims. to look up I actually have <laughs> seriously like, I have to go seriously? home now you're gonna... and read about the research that they've done. Yeah. Uh, on the language. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to play this. <laughs> and maybe you can just listen or watch people play the videos yeah. or their situations and li- just listen to the language itself mm-hmm. and maybe glean some sort of an idea. But it's very difficult to put into words that it's mm-hmm. a nonsense language that developed or they're trying to develop into an actual language, mm-hmm. which seems incredibly backwards. There's so many parameters, right? Yeah. And principles that. You violate. You by, violate, or that you have to abide by right. when you are, and that's what we do as speakers of any language, right? right? We have the, and this is a whole other story talking about universal grammar and how your brain is wired to yeah. have certain, certain universal principles that govern all languages of the world, mm-hmm. but. Each language has its own parameters, right? Yeah. And what it allows you or doesn't allow you to do. Um, anyway, in closing, language is important. And fascinating. And fascinating, as we found out. And Simlish is gibberish. <laughs> but is it gibberish with a pattern or not? That's what I want to find out. Well, <laughs> and I want to read about it. Stay tuned for me. upcoming episodes. Yeah, I can because report back on what she's I gonna, found. She's gonna, you're going to be our, our very first field reporter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm going to close on this story, which is, at the time, my girlfriend, uh-huh. my friend Michaela, I bought her the first Sims, and you know, The Sims 2 had just come out, but I bought the older version to see if she liked it. And she played it, and she really liked it. 
So I bought her the next version. The first thing she does is create, she created a version of me and a version of her uh-huh. in the game, uh-huh. which I thought was a bad idea. <laughs> so she does they this. can go both ways. Well, he, here's what ended up happening. I come home from work one, one day. She's angry at me. So she's simulating a, a discussion? No, this is in real life. Uh-huh. I come home from work personally, and I come in the door, and she's angry at me for I don't know what reason, uh-huh. right? So I was like, what's wrong? And then she says, I died and then you cried for two seconds, and then you went to play video games. Oh, it's like when you blame your boyfriend for something that happened in your dream. Right, there's that too. There's that too. <laughs> but then I had to say to her, uh, I hate to tell you, but that's probably the way it's gonna work in real life, oh. is I cry for a couple of seconds and then I go play video games, because that's how I process things. Uh-huh. Tenny, it was wonderful having you on the show. You gotta be on again. It was great talking with you. So many fascinating things about language. Oh, thank you for the invitation, even though I do not play video games <laughs> no, at that's all. Fine. But it's, that's, that's it fine. was a really interesting conversation. Yeah. I see the, the connections there. And Let's just close the show by saying have a wonderful, uh, wonderful, I don't know, life. <laughs> Go learn a second language. Go learn a second language. So or a third. That, or a third. Or, or fourth. fourth. Or just learn every single language. How many would that be? I don't know, 200, <laughs> 300? I don't know, are, are we, we including are we dead languages or not? Oh, yeah, that's true, too. Yeah. Dead language. Anyway, on that note, thank you so much for joining us. My name is Ben. And my name is Tani. And we've been your hosts. Have a great night. Have a great night. Bye.